Wellness Force Radio. Feelings are essential, but they can't dictate our actions. We literally infect each other with our emotions. We came here for a special purpose. Let the purpose unveil itself. Knowing without doing, the same thing as not knowing. They're not just trackers. I'm going to wear this and it's going to help me do the right thing. Wellness Force Radio, episode 97, with technologist, show host, and speaker on brain optimization, Jesse Lawler. It's a wide family that doesn't necessarily have like a common starting point when you talk about smart drugs. And I feel like that's a big misconception too for people that are just becoming aware of the field. They think it's, oh, it's it's all one thing or that there's like one common originator from which all the other smart drugs in the family sprang. That's not the case. Once you kind of build those neural pathways, whether that's neural pathway to say yes to something or a neural pathway to say, no, I don't do that, it becomes a lot easier. And, and what, again, might look like willpower to an outsider doesn't necessarily feel like you're exerting willpower to yourself. One of the greatest advantages of experimentation is kind of just realizing that you can do it. It's a continuous reminder of our power to start changes in our own lives when you're just screwing with something to see if it works in your own life. Because, you know, a lot of people kind of get caught in like mundane ruts and they forget that, you know, it's, it's within their power to change that. Welcome back to another episode, my friend. I am your host, Josh Trent. Thank you for spending your time with me here on the podcast. This is where every week I'm bringing you access to global experts in all things wellness, behavior change, and new technologies. On this podcast, you'll learn from exceptional people who are dedicating their lives to being a positive force for our physical and emotional wellness. My intention with the show is that together, we'll discover the connections between our emotions and healthy habits to live our best life and enjoy the process. This episode is brought to you by Perfect Supplements, a company I'm stoked to partner with, who actually walks the talk with their values of non-GMO, pesticide-free, real food supplements that fuel us for the wellness journey. Head on over to perfectsupplements.com slash wellnessforce, enter code wellnessforce to save 10% off your entire order. What's up, my friend? If you're still buzzing from the episode last Last week, it's probably a combination of the incredible show with Daniel Schmachtenberger we had discussing Qualia and Neurohacker. If you haven't listened to episode 96, make sure you put that in your queue. I think you're really going to love what we talked about on the show with Daniel as it directly relates to the expansion conversation we're having today with Jesse Lawler. We're understanding smart drugs, consciousness, and our brain's usage of willpower. You know, that reason why the chips seem so attractive at 9 p.m. when you're tired and had a long day at work. Today, Jesse is returning to Wellness Force Radio. I was so stoked to interview him because when I started this podcast in 2015, his show was a big inspiration for me in the beginning stages of my education on how brain health, productivity, and cognitive enhancement relates to us living a life well. So if you enjoyed our last episode, you're in for a double dose and a treat. If it's your first time tuning in, this episode is all about understanding your mind, why it does what it does, how it uses the placebo effect, how it relates to us having or not having willpower, how to avoid decision fatigue, and why Jesse went from eating a vegetarian diet to paleo after seven years when he found research from Harvard that led him to learn about the energy pathways that help us digest our food. We'll also talk about my 10-day silent Vipassana meditation last year and how exploring different states of consciousness can improve health and creativity, not only in executives from Silicon Valley, but also in war veterans that are coming home with post-traumatic stress disorder and beyond. Jesse and I went into a few really deep corners and also some engaging, fun pathways that made me laugh out loud multiple times during this conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy his energetic and fun personality. A little on Jesse, he's a podcast host of a widely popular show, Smart Drug Smarts. He's a technologist and a key speaker on smart drugs and brain optimization. With a passion for health, wellness, fasting, cognitive enhancement, smart drugs, meditation, altered states of consciousness, and basically anything or anyone that supports human and and brain optimization. Let's get into this lively and thought-provoking conversation with Jesse Lawler. Jesse, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. Last year, this time, uh, 50 episodes ago plus for both of us, yeah. we came on the show. We talked about the power of the brain. We talked about nootropics and smart drugs. Since then, you've put out some incredible content, man. I've been really, really just loving the stuff you're putting out there. And so today I'm twice as stoked as we were last time because there's twice as much information. And we're talking about not just brain health, but altered states of consciousness, how smart drugs can help us in our life, ultimately to be more well, man. So thanks for coming back on. 
thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wishing that I'd gone back and listened to our conversation from a year ago to see if there's like any asterisks or disclaimers or things that we want to like, no, 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 forget what I said there. <laughs> well, on that same note, a lot of the things we're going to talk about today are very high level. Jesse interviews a lot of medical and a lot of pharmacological experts. So he is not a doctor, but he is an expert in the field of what he does. He's the founder of Axon Labs. He's the host of Smart Drug Smarts. This is one of my favorite podcasts. I have 15 podcasts on my phone. I don't think it's possible to listen to more than 15 quality shows at a time. Jesse is one of them on my iPhone. This is a show that explores world-leading experts in not just neuroscience, but psychopharmacology. This is what enhances and protects our greatest asset, which is our noodle, our brain. So Jesse, tell us something fun that's happened in a year since we interviewed last. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I've probably gotten more religious about certain areas of like my diet and lifestyle. And and probably one thing that I'm really trying, I'm, I'm trying to become like you know, a born again, good sleeper. I, I've had probably pretty crummy sleep habits and it it's slowly starting to sink into me that uh, like shifting time zones and being kind of cavalier about that and going to sleep when the work's done rather than when my body is starting to get tired is probably uh it, it's short-term sustainable, but it's definitely not short-term optimal. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to kind of go back to basics with some of the stuff, which isn't necessarily, you know, smart drugs or new technologies, but kind of the mother's knows best wisdom that you probably should be applying in your life, but might not be. The past you've had is really unique because it's not like you just woke up one day and you're like, you know what? I'm going to be a host of a top ranked show on smart drugs. This was a pathway to get there. You were a programmer in one part of your life. You also were in film. You were in Hollywood for a minute or maybe for years. Tell us about that. Like, what was that road to where you actually launched Smart Drug Smarts? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, you know, it's it's a long story, but the quick version is that like I have always loved movies and media and, and kind of like movies were the media that I really, um you know, cut my teeth on, like, you know, making films in the backyard when I was a little kid. And, and luckily, kind of those skills transferred pretty well to running a podcast and doing this kind of stuff. Editing audio, it turns out, is like, you know, half of editing video and, and kind of the easy half of that. So um, a, a lot of that stuff did, was like a good skills transfer that I had. But I knew that, you know, going to Hollywood, you know, straight out of university, um, there was there was no guarantees there and that I didn't want to necessarily be, you know, bussing tables or whatever for my whole life. So I got a computer science degree, which it turned out came in really handy. And I, I have been and continue to be a software developer. I mean, not a week goes by that I'm not writing code, even as I'm making the podcast and stuff like that. That's an ongoing part of my life. Um, but yeah, the the software development, there's there's like a big demographic overlap between software people and smart drugs people, which is what got me down this particular rabbit hole probably about 10 or 11 years ago when I first sort of heard of smart drugs as even something that exists in the world. And um, yeah, it was probably about four years ago that uh, I, I was curious enough about it and I was getting – uh, intrigued by the podcast medium. And I kind of, at that point I was out of Hollywood, but I kind of, I felt the creative itch to, to produce something. And, uh, it just, a bunch of things came together. It was like, I was interested in the podcasts. I was interested in, in my brain and these drugs that I was considering putting into them for my software development. And, um, and I also knew that I just had like a long-term interest in science. And despite the fact like, you know, my degree is technically computer science, but I always felt like a technician, not like a, a research scientist. So I'm, I'm like the little, the yappy dog, like, you know, bouncing next to the big scientist saying, hey, tell me something new. Hey, tell me something new. And, and you know, doing the podcast gave me sort of a context to do that in where I wasn't just being an annoyance. And when you were a programmer, you read an article about modafinil or provigil. Is that when everything shifted? Is that when you started to go down this road of becoming an influencer in the smart drugs and nootropic space and having a podcast that reaches so many people? I, I can definitely like remember reading the article. So, I mean, I guess it was sort of a turning point, although like many turning points, it wasn't obvious at the time that it was going to be one. It's kind of, you know, yeah. in 2020 hindsight, looking back at it from you know a decade later, but um. But yeah, it was just like this little sidebar article in – it was like I think Maxim Magazine. It was just like, did you know that there are computer programmers that are taking this anti-narcolepsy drug? Because that, that's technically what modafinil is alleged to so – supposed to be prescribed for um, to you know be able to sit and code longer. And I'm like, well, I'm interested in sitting and coding longer and enjoying it while I'm doing it. And uh, yeah, that, that kind of sent me down the path. You're such a great truth seeker. I'm wondering if it's in your genetics because your grandpa was a lawyer. Is that where you got kind of a healthy way to spark debates? Uh, <laughs> my, my grandfather was a very argumentative lawyer. And um, I, I guess, 
yeah, maybe some of my questioning com- comes from that. I'm, I'm probably a lot less belligerent than my grandfather was. You know, he, he was pretty much my favorite relative. But uh, yeah, I, I beat up on my guests a lot less than he beat up on uh, the people he was prosecuting. What do you feel right now when people listen to Smart Drug Smarts? I mean, what's your greatest mission with the podcast? Tell us about the podcast. And then also, what do you want someone to feel or take action on after they've listened to your episodes? I, I guess one of the things I really like trying to do, you know, everybody likes getting people to think um, and think about things in new ways. One of the drum beats that I try to hit with the show, because one of the most common questions I get is, you know, what's the best smart drug, which is kind of a, um, a false paradigm in that you don't want your brain to be doing one thing all the time. It's like, we are these cyclical creatures. We have, you know, day and night cycles. We have monthly cycles. We have annual cycles, you know, all, and of course we have different things that we do throughout the day. So, um, you know, I kind of think of all the cognitive enhancement stuff that we talk about on the show is being akin to like Batman's tool belt. You know, if Batman tried to use all the tools in his belt simultaneously, he would hurt himself badly, even though he's Batman. It's like that. That's not how the tool belt is supposed to be used. Yeah. The tool belt is like, you you know what I've got available. And when you come across a certain situation where you're like, aha, this thing's handy. I'm going to reach for this bat gadget. Um, then you know it's there for you and you know how it's going to behave. I feel like each episode of Smart Drug Smarts is a virtual masterclass. But for people that are fuzzy about smart drugs, Give a few examples of misconceptions. A, what is a smart drug? And then B, what do people think it is that's not true? Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, one of the big things is because we're there's this umbrella term smart drugs, people think that they're all one thing and that maybe they operate in the same way. Uh, and that's it's really like smart drugs is kind of a term made up by marketers, certainly not by uh, you know pharmacologists or scientists, because some of the things people consider smart drugs are like the drugs that people on a- for ADHD use, like you know Ritalin and um, and Adderall are probably the big two there, and they are you know amphetamine based stimulants they have giant effects on the dopamine systems, um, have addictive potential. Uh, and and are really strong and, and like are going to motivate you, but maybe at the cost of, of some other aspects. Then there are other things like, um, you know, L-theanine is a, is a good example. You know, naturally occurring compound is the stuff that's in green tea that's not caffeine. And it promotes the release of a neurotransmitter called GABA, which kind of smooths things out a little bit. In green tea, it's what keeps you from getting kind of the, um, the same like fidgetiness. If you drink that, then if you just dr- drank a, you know, Starbucks, you know, venti or something. And, and so, you know, just a couple of examples there. It's a wide family that doesn't necessarily have like a common starting point when you talk about smart drugs. And I feel like that's a big misconception, too, for people that are just becoming aware of the field. They think it's, oh, it's it's all one thing or that there's like one common originator from which all the other smart drugs in the family sprang. That's not the case. We'll link part of the other show we had a year ago. We talked about the seven different blocks that you have from your site. And I'll make sure I put that in the show notes today. So if people want to dig deeper, they can go there. But why I'm so interested in your show and in smart drugs is how they optimize the human condition. How do these nootropics, how do these different things that we can consume actually aid to our better wellness and make us show up more powerfully with our families, with our job? What are some of the things that you talk about on the show in that regard to our wellness and our cognitive capacity? Yeah, well, memory is probably a big one that a lot of people ask about, and both in you know short-term memory and long-term memory, just being able to, where did I put my keys again? Or being able to you know grab that six-syllable word that you're like, I, I know the word, but I can't quite get it. Or you know, remembering somebody's name in a party, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and there are a lot of compounds that have been shown to significantly help a person's memory, both natural things like um, Bacopa maneri, a, um, an herb from India is, is a pretty well-known one. And then also ones that are completely man-made and synthetic, uh, the racetam family of chemicals is well known for that. Um, one of the other things, actually, if I can go down a side path for a second, that I think is really interesting is the connection between memory and creativity. That that's, uh, Creativity is something that people also ask about. It's like, you know, how can I you know, have more, you know, great, crazy ideas? And, and really, when you think about what creativity is, kind of like, you know, breaking down that process, it's coming up with a bunch of original ideas and then correctly selecting which ones are going to be applicable, like which ones are, are good, crazy ideas versus the bad, crazy ideas, because yeah. generally you're going to get a whole lot of haystack for any one particular creative needle. The, the way that short-term memory or, or what's called working memory, those are synonymous terms, 
plays into creativity is is kind of you've heard um, how they say that your average person can keep about seven ideas in their mind at one time in their working memory at one time. And for some people, it's lower. It's as low as five. For some people, it's higher. It's as high as nine. But it's kind of in that range for everybody. And it's a pretty, pretty tight bell curve when you look at the, the population demographics there. So, so basically, the, the creativity, when you're coming up with new ideas, you're juxtaposing these seven ideas that you have in your head against one another and saying, uh, does that stick? Uh, does that stick? Does that stick? And so you've got like this combinatorial thing, whatever uh, seven factorial is, it's a big number. But if you could you know, bump that up to eight and, and and be combining eight things instead of seven, all of a sudden you've got a, a plume more possibilities. And that's kind of where um, doing something to Im- improve your memory, which you wouldn't necessarily think directly ties into creativity. It actually really can be a yeah. creative boost. Well, why does somebody learn how to play the guitar effectively? I mean, this like the working memory piece mm-hmm. that allows them, if they have the working memory that's completely solidified and one channel, one groove, one synapse is really burned in, you can play the guitar blindfolded, yeah. right? You can do anything in your life so much better if you've trained the mechanisms in the brain to do that. How do smart drugs and nootropics kind of help train that groove? Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it varies, I think, from one to another as, as far as like the mechanism of action. And in some cases, they don't necessarily know how things work, but but only that they do work. Um, the, different compounds are different. Uh, like, for example, um, fish oil, you know, it was something that we've talked about on several episodes. It That actually helps with um, what's called the myelination of the neurons. It, it's um, omega-3 fatty acids are if, if you think of your, your brain as a brick wall, I mean, there's some of the bricks. There's some of the, the, the major components of the bricks that physically build the brain. And um, and ha- having well-myelinated neurons, you've probably seen a picture of a neuron where there's kind of like a, a bulb. You can almost think of it like an onion bulb and then this long sprout that goes off of it that connects to some other neurons. That's called an axon, and that's what sends the message outbound to the other neurons that it's connected with. Um, but there's this stuff called myelin, which is sort of a, a fatty compound that is is a sheath that wraps around the axon that keeps it from like losing its electrical signal out to the rest of the brain. It kind of keeps that electrical signal all bottled up. And um, just by having more myelin available to, you know, make sure your axons are, are well-coded, you lose less signal strength and they conduct faster. So, I mean, that, that would be an example of like one mechanism of action that is pretty well understood. But then there's other things where we know that they work, but not necessarily how they work. I was speaking with a... Um, yeah. A pharmacologist about modafinil recently. And, you know, he was still kind of scratching his head saying, you know, it, it affects about, you know, seven or eight different systems in the brain. We're not sure necessarily which one is the dominant one. If we understood it better, it might be an over-the-counter drug, but because we don't really understand it, it's still something which needs to be prescribed. Now, coffee is, I think, used by almost everyone. 64% of Americans drink three or more cups a day, which I looked up before our show. I could not believe that it's three cups. If I do more than one cup, I'm like jitters McGee. It's just craziness. <laughs> now, coffee for you, combining coffee and nootropics. Let's talk about this because I think a lot of people are interested in bulletproof coffee. I mean, that's all over the wellness industry, right? How do I get butter in my coffee and things like this? But when we combine nootropics and coffee, it takes 12 hours, sometimes more if you do a lot of caffeine for it to leave the body. The half-life, you know, is quite a bit of time. What are the ways that we can combine smart drugs, nootropics with the coffee and and what kind of benefits could that have? And could it be also bad for some people? Kind of a multifactional question. Coffee is a stimulant for most people. There are the oddball people, and I've met them that act, caffeine acts as a sedative for them and, and which is weird i mean it's exactly the opposite of what you'd expect. drink coffee go to bed my sister-in-law does that i don't it, know how she like, does it that. seems like it's you know three five percent of the population has this totally inverse reaction to coffee and, and the same is really true with a lot yeah. of other drugs too um you know doctors see this when they prescribe things is that you prescribe what you think is going to be best and then you see how the patient reacts to it and sometimes it, it's it's exactly not what you expect and there really is a lot of personal variation, which is, again, why answering that, like, what's the best smart drug question yeah. is is a really tough one. People do kind of have to see what sounds like it might be a good fit for them, try it, and then see if it actually is. But back to your question about, about caffeine and nootropics, um, just sort of recognizing that it is a stimulant, the, the question becomes how many stimulants are, do you want to stack on top of one another or, or do you? It's like if caffeine is your stimulant and you're getting as stimulated as you want to feel off that – you might be interested in looking at some other things, which, um, you know, maybe they have memory benefits. Maybe they have mood enhancing benefits. Maybe you don't need to layer another stimulant on top of that, you know, mixing coffee and phenylparacetam or whatever might be completely overkill. Yeah. Um, 
Right. But then again, for other people, it, it might not be. It just kind of depends. Like it, it sounds like you're a strong responder to caffeine. Like a little bit of caffeine goes a long way for you. So you might want to uh, just be aware of that and be aware of you know, some of the other nootropics you might be considering taking and say, is this really something I need? What I'm hearing from you is that it has to be kind of an N equals one. You have to go through some kind of a phase where you see individually how it applies to your life. There's no blanket statement when it comes to mixing caffeine and nootropics. Yeah, I, I, I think that's pretty safe to say. And I, I would kind of extend that almost to anything that you – yeah. yeah, you just you got to give things a try. I mean, I not to say that everybody should give everything a try. I mean, I'm a big believer in finding out like what the worst case scenarios are, what the best case scenarios are on any particular yeah. compound. Um, like you know, I've done a couple episodes on Adderall. I think it's you know it's fascinating, and it's it's kind of like I, I you know feel the devil on my shoulder saying, "Hey Jesse, you got to try this," and I feel the angel on my shoulder saying, "Jesse, you don't really need this. What the hell are you thinking?" And it's like you know, <laughs> sometimes you listen to the devil and sometimes you listen to the angel. But like, despite my curiosity on that one, I've still never tried Adderall. This word curiosity, it's come up quite a bit. Um, Daniel Schmachtenberg came on the show and we talked about curiosity and how that relates to wellness. Mm -hmm. And I'm feeling from you that you've had for a long time in your life, I know I have, just this overwhelming sense of insatiable curiosity. How do you think that fuels you for your show? I mean, how do you stay curious in a world where you're doing so much? Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, I, I kind of feel, I'm not sure if you can dial up or dial down your curiosity or if that's just kind of something you're born with. I mean, I've always been a curious person, but one thing, you know, when I was selecting a podcast topic, like I kind of was like, I wanted to play in this medium, but I wasn't exactly sure what to do a, a topic about that. That was kind of one of the things on my checklist is like, what is a topic that I'm not going to get bored of the topic after, you know, 10 episodes or whatever. And I knew, you know, psychology yeah. and brains and neuroscience and stuff like that were things that my whole life I'd been curious about. So it felt like a very safe gamble for me in that sense. To me, curiosity kind of like is the driving force more than money. I mean, probably more than personal comforts, <laughs> certainly sometimes. I mean, I've done some pretty uncomfortable yeah. things in the name of curiosity. <laughs> so, uh, so, so yeah, it, it's a big personal motivator. That is such a great point because I think what's fueled me in the show and I think what people can connect to you listening right now is that curiosity piece. I mean, everyone that's doing something they love is just genuinely curious about what they do. And a lot of exploration about curiosity can be in different states. So on your show, you've talked about exploring these different states of consciousness. And there was one episode, it was with Dr. James, is it Fadiman? Dr. Yeah, James yeah, Fadiman. And it was on psychedelics. This is not just some hippie phenomenon anymore. Not, not at the all. The focus, the creativity, the health benefits. People in Silicon Valley, high-powered executives are microdosing on LSD. Why are they doing this? Do you feel like we're in the middle of a psychedelic renaissance for corporations and high performance? It's funny. I mean, I, I really think that, you know, among the many repercussions that Steve Jobs had on planet Earth is his, you know, openly crediting LSD for being a major, you know, influencing factor in his life. And the fact that you're know, right now, Silicon Valley billionaires are kind of, you know, these, these lionized cultural hero types. And, and that'll probably continue to be the case for quite some time. The fact that a lot of these people are are kind of openly poo-pooing the, um, you know, anti-psychedelic drug laws and just saying, hey, you know, this stuff has worked for me. You know, look at any computer screensaver. It's like if, if you've tripped out and you've seen a computer screensaver and you haven't noticed the similarities, it's like you're, yeah. you're not looking at your screensaver carefully enough. Um, so, yeah, I think um, psychedelics have been a big part of uh, Silicon Valley and the, the programming underworld for a long, long time. And I kind of feel like in the past five to 10 years, um, people have, have sort of come out of the closet about psychedelics use. Yeah, it's, it's nice because that's that's percolating into being able to do more research studies into these things. There's some big LSD studies going on in the UK now. And, and yeah, microdosing, the idea of taking sort of a, a sub-perceptual dose of a psychedelic substance or like a barely perceptual dose is um is something that a lot of people are experimenting with. And these different states of consciousness, I mean, we're not telling you, by the way, to take LSD. That's not what this show is about. What we're trying to understand from Jesse is he's interviewed some of the most powerful people in cognitive health and in altered states of consciousness. One of the shows that I loved was with Dr. James Ironman. I think we talked about this the last time we interviewed. It was about holotropic breathing. I had done a holotropic breathing session in Venice, California yeah. here, and it was a four hour experience with speakers. And it was just it was the most intense thing. And at the end of 2016, I was at the Unbeatable Mind Retreat, which is run by Mark divine and seal fit. And we did some warrior breathing. And after 30 minutes of doing this kind of Stan Groff method where we were doing heavy inhales, heavy exhales, I was in the corner like crying. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know, I didn't know where it was coming from. And I just kind of let my body feel it. And for the next week or so, I just felt this like lightness in my step. And that was achieved. That altered state was achieved with no pharmacological intervention at all. 
I mean, this is just something where I was my breath doing yeah. it. What did you learn the most from that episode in your show with Dr. Ironman? Well, I mean, uh, oxygen gets you high. I mean, I, I think that's a quote from Tyler Durden in, um, in whatever that movie is, uh, Fight Club. But, but, but Fight I Club, mean, yeah. oxygen is a drug. So just because it's not something that, you know, is coming in by way of a, a pill or a needle or, or whatever, I mean, we, we shouldn't take it any less seriously. And um, there are a lot of, you know, quote unquote, natural means of getting to, into some extremely altered states. I mean, supposedly, you know, long-term like tribal kind of heavy dancing to the point where you're you know, exhausting yourself and, and probably sweating more fluids out than you're, you're drinking in and things like that. People can get into, into some ecstatic states that way as well. Um, so there's, there's a lot of options there that aren't necessarily pharmacological. I, I would almost defer to you on, because you've done like the according to Hoyle, here is how a holotropic breathwork session is supposed to work, yeah. which which I have not. I've not gone into a sort of an organized thing. I've had it you know described on the show and I've done it in you know the privacy of my own home a couple of times. But um, mm. but I'm, I'm, I've never done a four hour session. I mean, mine were like you know 45 minutes tops. Dr. Ironman treated over 11,000 patients in 12 years. We'll definitely link that in the show notes. What would you say based on your research? What's the difference between Wim Hof and the Groff method? Is there really a difference or are we just talking about hypoxia here? Uh, you know, honestly, I, I've got a I've got a punt on that one because I'm not up to speed on my Wim Hof. Got it. Well, there's another way we can achieve different states of consciousness. There's many. There's probably thousands of ways, actually. Yeah. You interviewed Dr. Rick Strassman, who is the author of of the spirit molecule about DMT and that state of consciousness. And DMT, this is something that's naturally found in every living thing in small amounts. It's not like it's pouring out of us, but ayahuasca, it's kind of one of these topics where people don't want to talk about it, but then some people talk about it with reckless abandon. Where do you stand on <laughs> ayahuasca and people experimenting in yeah, this? Um, I, I guess overall, I stand in favor of experimentation in general, because I, I feel like um, it, all that being said, I haven't done ayahuasca myself yet, but I, I feel like people should probably in general be more open to experimentation than many of us are. Um, what is it? What's they say that there's uh, nobody more uh, like talkative than the newly converted or something like that. And I kind of feel like a lot of people who have just done ayahuasca, they want to talk to the, you know, their butcher, the everyone's got to do it. They make everybody about it. It's, you know, the, the first, first and only thing they're interested in talking about. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really interesting one. Like people talk about having extremely profound experiences on it, which, um, yeah, I, I have no doubt is true. I, I do. I, I recognize the fact that it's a poison. I mean, you know, people say purgative as if that is somehow makes it OK. But like the fact is your your body is, is, is puking and shitting because it's trying to get something out of you that it really feels like physiologically shouldn't be in there, um, which, which yeah. does give me a bit of pause. I mean, I consider myself a, a pretty experimental guy, but the fact that like, you know, this is like eject on all systems um, get, makes makes me a little bit concerned about doing it, um, especially because, you know, there are other psychedelics which can be extremely strong that don't have these same, you know, press all the eject buttons at once effects on you. Um, you know, LSD mushrooms and, and actually pure DMT also um, has no, uh, none of that. It's, it's the, the vine, I believe it's the ayahuasca vine that's mixed with the, um, the DMT containing vine, which is what the body's reacting to. Um, the ayahuasca vine is the one that has the, um, the stuff in it, the MAO inhibitors that keep your stomach from being able to break down the DMT as they normally would. Right. And I think a lot of people are interested in this just because there is some healing that gets to take place in this world, yeah. specifically for the cases of war veterans that are coming back with post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, plant medicines, psychedelics have both been used to cure PTSD through the MAPS organization and others that are really helping these war veterans to heal. Tim Ferriss has gone on record talking about his experiences. Ben Greenfield is on record talking about his psilocybin experiences. So what whether it's plant medicine or whether it's some kind of other psychedelic, what are your thoughts around people using this for healing? Obviously, you're not a doctor, but you interview some of these most powerful doctors in the world about these topics. So what have you learned from these shows? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like if you have a condition like PTSD, then, you know, almost nothing should be off the table as a potential therapy. Um, that can be dangerous sometimes. And I, I feel like if people have a, a big problem that they're trying to solve, that opens them up sometimes to to quackery. And I mean, there's certainly we, you know we, there's historical examples of that with people you know being sold false bills of goods to cure cancer or whatever it is. Um, but but yeah, I mean, there it seems like there's nothing but not not nothing but but there are plenty of success stories with people treating depression, PTSD, things like that with psychedelic therapies. 
And um, given that psychedelics have, they're very well tolerated by the body. It's like nobody overdoses and dies from mushrooms. It's like, it doesn't happen. It's not there in the literature. Yeah. Um, if you've got a significant problem that you're trying to solve, it seems like it should be, uh, you know, one of the things that you certainly consider. Yeah. And another form that we can get through a different state of consciousness is obviously meditation. Last year, I did a 10 day of Vipassana. I did wow. 10 days of silent meditation, which I honestly don't think I'll ever do again. I think if anybody asked me, I'd recommend doing a weekend. The 10 day is for people that really want that introspection. So the phase that I was in in my life, I was seeking that. And there were moments where I had kind of like 30 second, 60 second times where I felt out of body, where I was watching myself meditate. Uh -huh. And this is, I was not taking any kind of drugs or any kind of pills that you actually only eat two meals a day. It's a vegetarian diet. There's no speaking to anyone. You can't look at anyone. You just sit and meditate from 4.30 in the morning all the way until 10 at night. And people do this because they want to achieve this union, this communion with a higher power. And everyone's got their own definition of what that higher power is. But what are your thoughts around meditation? What have you learned through some of these interviews? I mean, that's just one. There's also transcendental, there's Kundalini, there's mindfulness, there's all different ways to meditate. Yeah. Well, I, I guess if I can pitch a question back at you, it's like, what was your meditation experience like prior to doing that 10 days? Yeah. So before it was 10 to 20 minutes with an average of 15 minutes using the Muse meditation headband. I'd use it in the morning or the afternoon or midday to fight some stress with occasional weekends and having those be longer sits of around 45 to 60 minutes. So, so I, I'm actually like just this past Monday. So like, you know, th th two days ago at the time of our talking, I, I just started a six week meditation course um, to you know do it in a small group here in my community, just kind of like have a little bit of public accountability to actually stick with it because it's been one of these things I've started and stopped at various points over the course of my life. And it, the the doctor who's leading this course, he's got like the full on um, like a QEEG system in his office. So he's going to do before and after brain scans of the people. So it, it sounded like there was a, enough of sort of a um, some, some scientific candy to go along with it that it's, it sounded like a good fit for me. Um, but anyway, on the, on the first day of class on Monday, he made the great point that a lot of people sort of try to go too much too fast with meditation. And it's akin to, um, you know, if you've never, you know, ran around the block trying to run a marathon, it's like, you're just going to hurt yourself. It, it, and you're, you're, you're not going to be effectively running. Your form's going to be bad by, you know, mile number three, you're going to be, you know, getting shin splints and all that stuff. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of feel like there's there's probably a lot of wisdom in that and that it might – you know, I, I don't know if 20 minutes a day of meditation is enough to go in for like a week of you know eight hours a day. Like if, if your um, you know, capacity for sort of staying in that headspace um, has been built up enough by that point. But I mean I, I know that I wouldn't be able to go eight hours and like I, I might be able to sit quietly for eight hours. But it wouldn't be meditating. Yeah, it, it was the most it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done. Yeah. And the reason I ask is because I did have some pretty incredible journaling sessions after that. And I'm curious yeah. if you've ever done anything from your own perspective or if you've learned about from these experts in regards to meditation, knowing there's many different facets of meditation that you seem to be really effective for people getting more in touch with their inner self. And when I say inner self, I just mean the part of them that's well. Yeah, well, I, I think that there are probably several different schools of meditation that that are doing different things within the brain. Um, you know, some, some meditation seems to be based on, on focus. Like, you know, there's a single, you're focusing on your breath or you're focusing on, you know, a candle flame or, or a, a particular mantra. Um, I could, can sort of see where that is, is going to be beneficial if you have like ADHD, a hard time concentrating, things like that. Whereas other, other meditation styles, like, like I, I think it's called open focus. You're kind of like listening to the sounds of the cars going by or birds twittering. And you're like, you're just trying to be aware of everything at once. And like, kind of like non-judgmentally aware, not to get too interested in it, but it's kind of like, you know, all your radar screens are up. So it's, it's almost like the opposite of focus. You could kind of see where both of those are probably going to be useful, but you're training your brain to do different things. And, and still other forms of meditation are much more about, you know, quieting the mind, maybe getting rid of those inner voices that, you know, might be judgmental or and things like that. Um, that kind of style of meditation can be really helpful if somebody's depressed because sometimes depression is, you know, you, you've got a little nagging voice that's telling you you're not good enough. And if you can just get that voice to shut up, then like you know, half your depression's gone overnight. Um, um, so I, I feel like the style of meditation that a person chooses is really going to affect 
what they're practicing and getting their brain better at. And, and so t- to be aware of that, like what, what is your goal for the meditation? What is your, what is your goal for your own personal betterment at, at the time that you start um, as you're picking the style of meditation that you gravitate towards? One of the things that I feel we've been going around that I want to go straight into now is the placebo effect and willpower, because a lot of people might have something in their head where they say, I'm a great sprinter. And they are. And it could be possibly placebo. A lot of people might say, I'm great at willpower. I can totally say no to Dorito chips or I can obviously just have one cookie. But then there are some people that just cannot deal. It's either yes or no. Mm -hmm. And Gretchen Rubin calls this personality types, right? You're either an abstainer or you're a moderator. Do you think that with placebo effect and willpower, that willpower is this finite muscle that can get fatigued? Or do you think some people are just born with more willpower based on these interviews you've done? Oh boy, I mean, that's a tough one. And I'm going to punt to the experts a little bit on that. But I I think that willpower is probably something that does get exhausted in a person. But I think that something that looks like willpower to an outsider, like, wow, that person's got a lot of willpower. He just walked by a bag of Doritos and didn't even bat an eyelid, um, you know, might not be willpower to that person. He might have trained himself to avoid Doritos 17 years ago. And it's just it's, it takes zero willpower now. And it's just it's not even an option. Whereas, you know, today he's like, you know, I've, I've got to go make myself, you know, swim five miles or, or whatever. It's like his, his willpower is being applied to something else in the present moment, because yeah. once, once you kind of build those neural pathways, whether that's neural pathway to say yes to something or a neural pathway to say, no, I don't do that. It becomes a lot easier. And, and what, again, might look like willpower to an outsider doesn't necessarily feel like you're exerting willpower to yourself. This past week, I was listening to the placebo effect with Dr. Tor Wagner. He's the director of cognitive and effective neuroscience laboratory at the University of Colorado Boulder. It's episode 164 in Smart Drug Smarts. I'm going to link that in the show notes. I'm going to link like 15 Thanks. of your episodes. That's awesome. I, yeah, I hope you don't mind because this is actually one of the shows that I listen to on the regular. Now, this episode, what I loved is that the exploration of why some people think that things are true versus what is actually happening. You know, what's going on in the mind about someone's knee or their gut health or their shoulder or whatever it might be. What did you learn the most from that episode? Always amazes me when I think about placebo effects is that well, like I said in the show, they, they, they kind of get a bad rap. You talk to the man on the street about placebo effects, and, and if you say, oh, you know, such and such thing causes a placebo effect, they think, oh, that means the thing's not real. That means it's all in the person's head. And and what I, th- I think very few people outside sort of the scientific research community understand is that things that actually have physiological effects also have a placebo effect, kind of like a, a second layer on the cake. Because when, once you come to expect that something is going to work – you, you kind of get this extra layer of expectation power on top of whatever the, the physiological power underlying that is. Um, you know, if, if you take aspirin five days in a row and it, it works for you, then on day six, you know, you have the expectation of aspirin working in addition to the aspirin actually working. And, and we see that all over in our lives. So, so the power of expectation, it kind of gets poo-pooed, I feel like, by some of us that are kind of, you know, the hard-headed rationalist set, of which I count myself one. It, it really shouldn't be. Hmm. What is the truth about placebo? Are there long-term studies that correlate the results from a sugar pill versus the actual medication and then what the patients came back with with the result? Can you tell us more about what you dove into on the episode from a scientific perspective? There, there's some interesting things. For, for one thing, it seems like, at least in the U.S., placebo effects are getting stronger over time. He said like over the, over the past 30 years, it's gotten harder to um, you know, get new medicines past the FDA because one of the, one of the hurdles that a new medicine has to get over for whatever it is that they're applying to be able to be prescribed for is that the medicine is significantly better than a placebo treatment. And it, it turns out that although medicines might not have been getting worse over the past 30 years, placebo effects are getting stronger. So it's kind of like they're catching up in the race in a, in a way. And, and one of the things that drug companies are really trying to do is, is identify ways of screening out people that are prone to placebo effects. Like I, I might be wrong about this psychologically, but if you're somebody that can be like talked into anything, like you're just, you're gullible. gullible. It, yeah. it, so like I, I assume that gullibility and placebo responders probably have a, a pretty strong overlap. I, I could be wrong about yeah. that. But let's just go with it and assume it's true. Yeah. So, so, so um, if you're a drug company and you're putting, you know, your you know billion dollars of investment towards trying to get some drug through the FDA, you want to get rid of all the people that are really, really gullible that are going to throw your numbers off and, and make your new drug look like it doesn't do anything just because these people 
tend to respond strongly to you know anybody in a lab coat that says, hey, this is going to work for you. That was really interesting. And the fact that there is kind of like this this arms race between the pharmaceutical drug development industry, and, and, and I'm not like talking about them like twirling mustaches and mm-hmm. black hats at this point. I'm just, you know, these are people that are trying to make medicines to uh, you know, make people healthier. Um, but there's kind of an arms race between them and um, people that, that might be uh, – ha- expectation has a lot of power for them. And if they can figure out how to weed those people out of their studies, their drugs will look more effective and be more likely to you know, become available to people because the FDA says, yes, this is an actual viable drug. Um, another really interesting thing that, that was mentioned on that episode was um, that people who are optimists tend to be stronger responders to placebo. And, and a, a question that I asked him, which, which we didn't have the answer to, the data is not there yet, but I think would be an interesting one, is the opposite of placebo effect is something called a nocebo effect. It's basically the expectation that things are going to get be bad and get worse. And if I stub my toe, I think, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to amputate my leg, Thing, things like that. And um, I'm wondering if pessimism might be positively correlated with strong response to nocebo effects, the same way that that optimism is for placebo effects. We don't know the answer to that one, but it seems like a reasonable guess. That is so fascinating because whether you're an A-type analytical kind of strong, healthy skeptic, or you're someone that just believes in smoke and mirrors, there's kind of a corollary between, hey, the law of attraction versus negative positive thinking versus scientific data that's actually showing placebo or nocebo. Yeah, yeah. That is fascinating, man. Well, one of the things that that also interests me too about the health of the body is the power of our thoughts and then how those thoughts relate to our actions. When we look at cognitive decline, people's ability to have less decision fatigue at the end of a busy day, why do we think there are candy bars that are stacked right there when people check out and bags of chips right there when you check out? It's because at 8.30 at night, our willpower is depleted. Our strength of our cognition is sure. depleted. So with smart drugs, how do they boost the cognition? We've dove into the this last episode a little bit, but this is a unique case when it's the end of a day and you're feeling super fatigued and you just have no more choice willpower. How could a nootropic actually support that to where you'd be like, no, I don't want the chips. Anything that enhances executive function is sort of what they call it within the brain. The, the ability to make smart decisions and not be run over by your instincts is uh, is executive <laughs> function. And um, I, I would say that that would generally go hand in hand with um, something that's going you know, Im- to prove motivation because if, if you are motivated to um, listen to the angel on your shoulder versus the devil on your shoulder, that's going to help you out. I could see that maybe going the other way too, though. It might like extra motivation might motivate you towards the Snickers bar. I hesitate to answer on that one w- with authority because I could see something that promotes dopamine maybe going both ways. But but I, w- I would generally say a a dopamine promoting, you know, focus enhancing uh, stimulant type substance is probably going to help power you through those um, sort of fatigued moments. A big part of our emotional health comes from how we feel in our body and how satiated we are throughout the day. I mean, it's hard to treat other people well and think good thoughts if you're walking around hangry. One of the best ways to cure satiety and satiation is to add in powdered collagen to your drinks, your waters, and into your foods. I use Perfect Supplements Collagen. It's sourced from 100% grass-fed cows. That means there's no hormones, pesticides, or synthetics because these are healthy cows that eat grass while the sick cows eat corn. So beyond these healing powers of collagen for digestion and joint health, it also has 20 grams of protein in two scoops, which helps to curb appetite and increase that satiety. One of the cool things about this collagen is that there's individual packets you can mix in water and you know what it tastes like? water. I mean, all of a sudden my glass has 10 grams, 20 grams of protein and all the health benefits of having this non-GMO pasture-raised collagen in my bloodstream. So don't walk around hangry. Pick up your grass-fed collagen. Feel better in your emotional body and your physical body every day. It's part of the Wellness Force Radio Bundle, and it's heavily discounted just for you. Click over to perfectsupplements.com slash wellnessforce to save 10% off the already discounted package and get more wellness in the process. How many years total have you been experimenting with nootropics and smart drugs? What's that span been? Uh, I, th- I think I'm at 11 years now. I mean, I, I didn't write down the exact date that I, I came across that article in Maxim Magazine, but it's somewhere on the order of 10 or 11 years. Have you noticed when you've mixed certain types of nootropics, we'll talk about Nexus and Mitogen, but when you when you actually combine these nootropics with certain dietary sources, whether it be a higher fat diet or a higher carbohydrate or lower carbohydrate, do you notice that you feel better or worse when you take nootropics with certain kinds of food specifically for you? 
I, I do find that when I eat carb heavy meals, um, and that could be early or late in the day, it's, it's, that's probably a diminution of my cognition more than, uh, you know, most nootropics are going to be able to counterbalance. Like I, I, I could definitely just kind of, you know, get the, oh, I just had a big plate of spaghetti. I'm going to you know, go into a slump for a while. Not that I eat big sp- plates of spaghetti anymore, but back when I did, it's like, that was definitely something that, um, that I would notice. I I've been doing intermittent fasting pretty consistently for, uh, you know, better part of two years now. It's like, I don't do it every day, but I probably five days a week, I'll go till three or four in the afternoon before I eat any real food. And, wow. um, so what's your feeding window time? Uh, well, it's kind of like whenever I feel like starting, but that's typically about three or four in the afternoon and I'll eat until yeah. maybe 10 at night. I'll have, you know, whatever passes for dessert that night and then start again. So, I mean, you know, six, seven, eight hours, I'm, I'm not super religious about it, but one of the kind of nice things about intermittent fasting as a lifestyle is it's very forgiving. It's like, you know, if, if somebody offers to make you a great breakfast on a certain day and you're like, well, I'm not going to do it today. It's like, you know, the, the, the sky doesn't fall. Yeah. Uh, so, so I found intermittent fasting to be really useful. I do sometimes have a little bit of fat with my coffee in the morning. Um, you know, whether that's, or even like, you know, a half an avocado or something like that just to help, um, you know, with the digestion of, of any, uh, pills that I'm taking, which might be lipophilic. I've kind of found that that the intermittent fasting is a, is a rhythm that works well for me. And once I found that I haven't, I haven't strayed from it all that much in the last couple of years. Last time we interviewed, you talked about a book you read catching fire. Uh, oh, yeah. how humans, how cooking made us human and it changed the way you ate. Cause before that you had a specific way, right? Were you doing veganism or vegetarianism? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was vegan for seven years before. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so not just vegetarian. Did, did we talk about the difference between the word vegan and vegetarian? Go for it. I don't think we did. Uh, okay. So th- this is yeah. just, it's a, it's a funny story. Good to know. Um, like it, what we now call vegans, people that do not eat any animal matter are what used to be called vegetarians. Vegans in the old days called themselves vegetarians. That was like the original term. But then there were so many people that were like, well, I'm vegan, but you know, I'm going to eat a little fish. Well, I'm vegan, but you know, I'm going to have a little cheese. (laughs) Well, I'm vegan, but I drink a six glasses of milk every day. And, yeah. and all these, all, all the vegetarians, quote unquote, the old school vegetarians were like that you're not a freaking vegetarian. If you're having this stuff, it comes from animals. You can't call yourself this, but they just got outnumbered. And eventually there were so many of these people that were like, had the little asterisks next to their vegetarianism that the vegetarians, like the, the core vegetarians just gave up. They're like, we cannot defend our territory on this term. And so we're going to have to make up this stupid new word vegan and call ourselves that. And they kind of circled the wagons around this word vegan, which they've staunchly protected ever since because, uh, yeah, they, they just got washed out by the, uh, the, the posers. Man, I did not know that. Thank you for that cool history lesson. Yeah, yeah, that, that, like, that's, <laughs> that's where it came from. Um, anyway, but that, that has nothing to do with your question. But yes, I was a an actual vegan vegan for um, just about seven years. And then I read a book. Uh, actually, I read a book probably partway through that seven years uh, by Dr. Richard Rangham. From, he's an evolutionary biologist at Harvard and um, wrote a book called Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. It really lays out a very – what I found to be a persuasive theory of human evolution um, showing you know some big jumps sort of in our, our – uh, hominid ancestors that there there are only a few things that probably could have caused them could have caused like you know the tripling of our brain size over the course of a few hundred thousand years and um yeah kind of the, the likely candidates are things like you know when did we start hunting when did we you know gain use of fire when did language develop things like that and, and he, anyway he he makes the case that kind of um you know fire was the first domino to fall and a very important domino and once we started doing that it allowed us to um, it's kind of the, the you've heard of the expensive tissue hypothesis, where there are certain uh, biological tissues in our body that just take a lot more calories per pound, like the brain. To operate like the, the the brain is is one, and then yeah. uh, also is is the gut. It actually kind of like revving up the engine on the gut to get it to start processing your food takes a lot of power. It's kind of like um you you need to pull the chain on the old lawnmower to get the lawnmower to start. It takes effort there. Um, yeah. Once we were able to kind of outsource a lot of our digestion, the breaking down of the food to fire, something that could be done externally and didn't require our biological effort to do, then all of a sudden digestion became a lot easier. And so we didn't need to have these giant guts. If you like, if you look at most monkeys, they've actually got, you know, what, if you saw it on a human, you would say, well, that, that person's got a big pot belly. That's, it's not a pot belly on a, on a monkey. It's just they need to have a lot of intestines in order to break down their uncooked food. Once we started outsourcing our digestion partially to fire, 
all of a sudden we didn't need this giant intestine. So this expensive tissue that takes a lot of energy to run, all of a sudden we kind of were running at an energy surplus. And so, you know, evolution, clever beast that it is, it's like, okay, well, we got this extra energy. We'll, we'll try it here. We'll try it there. We'll see which parts of the body, you know, makes best use of it. And uh, apparently that led to sort of a, a runaway growth in another very expensive tissue, which is brain tissue. And, um, you know, pro probably of all the various mutations that evolution might have tried out on our ancestors of, of what we could do with this sort of evolutionary uh, energy surplus, the brain was where it came in most handy. And so we got this massively growing brain. This is why I think it's so fun to talk to you about topics because I never know where we're going to go. That was a fun little cul-de-sac we ended up in. And I think what's unique is that every single person tries on the sweater and see if it itches or they don't. Some people just <laughs> trust. I feel like this is the third or fourth time during our talk where the placebo or nocebo effect, what we think versus how we feel versus what is true has come up again. And whether you're eating vegan or vegetarian or paleo or however you're eating, if it feels good and you're getting the results you want, isn't that the most primary indicator of success? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the funny thing is people ask me when I switched from from eating vegan to eating paleo, which is what I do now, like, did you did you feel super better? Did, did you feel, you know, what changed? And the answer is yeah. a lot of things changed. I, I didn't necessarily feel better day to day. Um, we, we can talk about some of those changes, but I mean, I felt good as a vegan also. The thing is, I, I kind of feel like the... Um, the standard American diet is is almost like the worst worst of all worlds and that like any direction you sort of pirouette off from that standard American <laughs> diet, whether that's veganism or, you know, carnivorism or, or whatever, it like yeah. it, it, it's just stay out of the middle. It's like God, the, so the true. middle is not the place to be. Same thing with the grocery stores, hug the edges, right? No matter yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, one of the ways that I think people figure this out, this process out is N equals one. So N equals one, I talked about it in a blog post last week on Wellness Force. It's understanding what really works for you through a process of elimination and a process of strategic testing. How have you felt in your life that you've used N equals one? What are you doing right now, maybe? Or what is something that you've tried where you've actually recorded things in an N equals one fashion? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I think that one of the one of the greatest advantages of experimentation is kind of just realizing that you can do it. It's a continuous reminder of our power to start changes in our own lives when you're just screwing with something to see if it works in your own life. Because, you know, a, a lot of people kind of get caught in like mundane ruts and they forget that, you know, it's, it's within their power to change that. And by doing the little, you know, the one week experiments or the 30 day challenges or, or whatever it might be on a semi-regular basis, it's just, a, it's a kind of a constant reminder that we, we are always in flux. Flux is the one thing that you can't change, but you can at least direct it. And, and and you can you know, try different things and see what works and hopefully, you know, make continuous improvements. I mean, I, I guess, you know, one, one interesting N equals one experiment that I did, which is, um, you know, an example of a total crash and burn. But, um, yeah, I, I, I did a, um, a sleep experiment. Have you, have you heard of the uh, – What's it, what's it called now? The the Uberman sleep schedule? No, what's that all about? Uh, okay, so, so so again, this is do not try this at home. I tried it like I would not recommend it to anybody. It was it was a, it was a disaster. Basically, break up your sleep into little bits throughout the day, and you sleep in twenty minute blocks separated by about three and a half hours. And you need to do these twenty minute blocks throughout the day. Every three and a half hours, you like you need to get that block in. But if if you add that up over the course of twenty four hours, it's it's a lot less sleep. It's something like you know three and a half hours of sleep versus eight hours of sleep total contiguous sleep over the course of a day. So if, if you're you know, trying to be a super productivity hacker and you want an extra five hours, like this is a way to get it if you sleep on this ridiculous regimen. And then the idea is that you train your brain to drop into REM sleep, drop into that dream stage sleep really, really quickly because like that's the one stage of sleep that you need to keep you from going bonkers. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't get necessarily as much restorative sleep and, and all that stuff. But technically, you can train your brain to do this and, and you know survive, if not thrive this way. Although there are people who claim that they thrive this way. I mean, there are people that claim a lot of things. There's always these fringe people, isn't there? I there, mean, you know, it sounds I'm, like for the, for the mass population, it sounds like an incredible way to get fat. <laughs> I mean, when you look at leptin and ghrelin and how that works in the body, right? Like being a productivity freak, I, I was, I, I just saw this claim of, you know, here's a way of getting an extra four and a half hours in your day sustainably and with a smile on your face. And I was like, yeah. 
it, it sounds too good to be true, but Jesus, I got to try it. It was just, I, I, it was, and, and you know, there, there's some like r- well-written articles that seem like maybe this is true. Um, and, and so I tried it and completely zombified myself for about nine days. I, I wound up finding an article by a sleep researcher that kind of debunked the whole thing saying like, look, this is probably physiologically possible, but if you're doing it for like, if you're a bricklayer and your job is just to lay one brick after another, yes, you might be more productive because laying one brick after another doesn't take any cognitive capacity. But if you use your brain during the hours that you're awake, you are not doing yourself a net positive by gaining these extra four and a half hours because for, you know, the 20 hours that you're awake every day, you're going to be you know, operating at, at 60% below your you know, normal waking capacity. Do you have any tools or any ways that you track now in your current or future N equals one experiments? Do you have any apps or wearables or devices that you use? You know, I, I'm actually wearing something right now called the Aura ring. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's pronounced Aura or Aura, or but um, I'll, I'll find out about that soon because I, I just got it a couple of weeks ago and I'm going to be interviewing one of the uh, the scientist creators behind it. But it is a um, a gadget to track pretty much everything that you can track. The reason that it's a ring rather than like a wristband or something else is because the uh, the blood vessels on the inside of your finger, kind of where your fingers touch one another, are very close to the surface and it's able to get better data there than it would be in another position. Um, and, and yeah, so I mean, I, I'm a really big believer in the the trackers, the wearables. Um, you know, I will be the first to sign up for a, a you know an internal device when they you could just have something sitting somewhere convenient in my bloodstream to be pumping data out. You'd go transhuman, huh? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I, f- I feel like that's a, it's a slippery slope, but we're kind of, yeah. we're already there whether we like to think of it or not. I mean, you're wearing glasses right now. And I mean, you know, <laughs> if glasses aren't transhumanism, right. then what is? As far as N equals one stuff, I, I feel like th- there's a lot of tech geeks probably in your audience. There certainly are in mine. And, and we can kind of, Sometimes I think lose the forest through the trees of like, yeah, I need to be able to track everything perfectly. And, and like, I, I yeah. like the rapid iteration on experiments. And typically my tracking will just at least start out being just a Google sheet. You know, all I need is a spreadsheet and a couple of columns and just, you know, write stuff down, maybe a reminder on my phone that like, you know, beeps at random intervals to make me, you know, check whatever it is I'm checking and just, you know, put, put a row in the sheet. And if it's something that like I want to stick with long term and it doesn't become a habit of its own accord – then maybe upgrade your Google sheet to something more dedicated. But, but I kind of feel like the quick and dirty solution just to kind of get you going on things is sometimes the best option. Yeah. The easier, the less barriers to entry, the better, whether it is a tracker, you know, I'm using this Fitbit and it has the led lights that shoot through my skin. I have done the research on that. The interesting part about this is that our cell phone emits 10 times the radiation and the IF that this would, that the watch would. So I've done the research for my own self and I feel confident that this isn't going to have any deleterious health effects. I think that's the big key though, is I took a breath and I did the research, which took a chunk of time, but it was important to me. If I'm investing my energy, my resources, my finances into anything at all for health and wellness, I want to do some research. I want to know two things. A, does it apply to me? Is it safe? Is it something that I can trust? And B, will it impact me for the long term, for the long haul? And I think most people that are doing research, especially people that listen to podcasts, are really savvy. They know, they can hear it in someone's voice. We all can understand in someone's voice if they're full of it or not. You can hear it in someone's voice that they're lying, but anybody can write an article. The frustrating caveat to that is even when you do research it, you're, there's going to be mixed signals. Um on the 100th episode of my show, I interviewed a guy who's like a super genius, like 190 IQ, like really, really one of the world's smartest guys, you know, measuring by IQ. And, uh, you know, he, he takes something like, you know, 50 or 60 pills every single day for his health. Sounds like Ray Kurzweil. Yeah, it wasn't Ray Kurzweil, but but same order of magnitude of intelligence. And But he takes these 50 or 60 pills and he said, you know, honestly, Jesse, I'm sure that probably 60% of these pills aren't doing anything for me, but I don't know which 60%. So I take them all. And, and uh, you know, if, if this is a guy with 190 IQ saying that, I mean, he's clearly done the research also and is in the, you know, a position to synthesize probably better than most of us are. The opposite's probably true too. It's like with, with all of the things in our lives, there are probably things where, where we are hurting ourselves, whether it's our cell phone emissions or, you know, am I too close to my Wi-Fi? You know, are, are these earphones I podcast in, you know, destroying my ears. I mean, who knows? Some of them are we probably horrible ideas and 10 years from now we'll be kicking ourselves. But you know, unfortunately, we just don't know yet. This has been such a fun conversation and I want to wrap this up. This is seven fast questions. Whatever comes up for you first. Are you ready? Sure. I'll, I'll see what I can do. The first one is what you value. If you look at life from a 30,000 foot view, what are three or five things that you most value and why? I, I guess I really do value aesthetic beauty. Um, I value 
curiosity, I'll come back to that one. Um, free time and books. Uh, I, I really, as, as much as I like things like podcasts, I really like books because I feel like, you know, I put out a hundred podcasts in my life, but if I write one book, it's like, that'll be like the distillation of everything. I kind of feel like when you read a book, you get like the, the best of that person's last five years all in one, you know, cognitive object. Mm. What does your morning look like now? compared to a year ago? Have your habits or your rituals changed in that morning? Wow. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, I've, I've moved. So some of it's like city move stuff, but, um, but yeah, I'm getting up quite a bit earlier. I'm exercising in the morning rather than in the afternoon, which has been a change. Why did you make that change? It just kind of worked out that way. It was, it was like something I started experimenting with and it, it felt right. And it was kind of nice to get it out of the way. I mean, it's not like I don't like exercising, but there, there's a certain, you know, you don't like exercising every day. It's like even people that do like, like exercising. It's Jack like, Lane didn't love exercise. He just yeah. loved the benefits. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it's kind of nice just to like tick that one off the list and like not need to worry about it until tomorrow and not be like, oh, it's already 6 p.m. and I haven't exercised yet. That That's kind of, you know, we've all been in that situation and it's, it's a crummy, crummy one to be in. So yeah, just getting it out of the way early has been nice. Over the past year, is there one or two guests? Kind of a really difficult question, I know, because you have so oh, many God, awesome people on the it. show. Don't make me do it. Um, but was there one or two that really sparked this this curiosity we've gone back to, um, even more so when you were done interviewing them than before? I, I feel like I might have thought about uh, the interview with Dennis McKenna, maybe more than a lot of the others, um, possibly because there's like an element of hero worship there. Uh, that, you know, I, would read his work and his brother's work before I'd spoken with him. And he was, he was, he's somebody that I'd known about for a long time. And, um, I, I kind of view as like one of the great living experimentalists. It's like, you know, talking to somebody that like both went to the moon and designed the rocket ship to get there. And, and, um, such an interesting guy because in addition to being an experimentalist, uh, he's also a scientist. I mean, and he really studies these things from like an analytical level too. And, um, I, I just really like his style of um, like I would consider him like a, a rationalist. Um, he, he's not like talking a bunch of heebie-jeebie, you know, fairies and moonbeam stuff. And, and yet he's also like deeply curious and realizes that the world might be quite a bit weirder than we know about. But he he just he's, he draws a firm line between what we know and what speculation he's willing to speculate, but he calls it speculation and doesn't ascribe like, you know, feelings uh, more more validity than they really deserve. We've talked a lot on Wellness Force about presence, emotional presence. Is there something that you pull from or is there something that's been really good for you to practice presence? How do you be present in your life? Hmm. Um, I feel like actually being around young children is really good for that uh, because because they are very present themselves and kind of kind of drag you down to their level, <laughs> you know, in a way. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, it's hard not to be present or at least like little kids call bullshit in a way that adults won't if you're not paying enough attention to them. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, it, it kind of does pull you down to the present. They're the ultimate beacon of truth. Nothing's more raw and real than a kid's perspective. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So inspiration and motivation, rather to be motivated, inspiration is something that wells up from inside of us. What wells up from inside of you about what you're doing for your community? Get, getting emails from people talking about the different ways that like the podcast has affected their life. Some, some of which are really surprising. And I mean, they're just, you know, people from different parts of the world and, and um, not necessarily like, you know, the demographic that I would have expected to be the listeners, you know, people that, that, that on the surface of it don't sound much like me. I'm like, well, how the hell did you find me? Um, uh, that 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 really is sort of a, a weird source of inspiration, knowing that, um, you know, by doing the, the the publication that I'm doing, I'm I'm casting a much wider net than I'm even you know aware of at the time. If somebody's curious right now about smart drugs, what are one or two steps they could do to begin the process of implementing smart drugs in their life? We've we've got a getting started page. I believe it's smartdrugsmarts.com slash get dash started. If I'm not mistaken, um, that kind of is a um a little bit of like a best of, of some past episodes and kind of a, a starting point for exploring the website and, and the podcast. Um, as, as far as like, you know, what, what to rush out and order, I, I would listen to a few episodes and, and kind of, you know, assess your personal, um, your motivations. Like, are you, are you more interested in like creativity focus is, it, uh, like mood and, and just kind of like if you, if you thought of, uh, you know, your mind or intelligence is like, you know, fractaled out into lots of different things. Like what, what specific aspects do you want to improve? Not necessarily just be smarter, but is that pay better attention? Is that sustain attention longer? Is that, 
uh, having a better memory. Um, and just sort of, I, I would start actually by like the identification process of what you're after. Get really clear on what the result you want first, rather than just trying something for the sake of trying it. Yeah. Last question. In 2017, compared to what you've gone through in the past year, what is wellness to you? What is your definition of wellness for 2017? Mm, uh, I, I, I would say feeling satisfied with my day when I go to bed at night and excited to whatever I'm going to be starting in, in the following morning. Uh, and the reason I chose to sort of tie that to a day is because like, I, I'm trying to, again, appreciate that sort of cyclicality of day in, day out. And, and not, uh, you know, that, that it's a marathon, not a race. I guess a race is a marathon, but yeah, anyway, you know what I mean? <laughs> a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> not a sprint, yeah. Well, I'm signed up for Jesse's Brain Breakfast. You can sign up for that at smartsharksmarts.com. Jesse is the founder of Axon Labs, an amazing company offering two cognitive enhancement supplements, Nexus and Mitogen. Jesse was kind enough to give us 15% off by using code WELLFX for both Nexus and Mitogen. Jesse, tell us about these cognitive enhancers and give us some insights into what's coming for Smart Drug Smarts and you this year. Yeah, um, so Nexus and Mitogen, we had two different stacks because we sort of wanted to approach two different things. Uh, Mitogen comes from the the word mitochondria. And uh, mitochondria, as you probably know, are like little uh, cellular, intracellular powerhouses. You have thousands of them in in almost every cell of your body, but they're what kind of builds our, our energy system, something called ATP. Is, is sort of the basic energy currency of the body. And your brain, as we talked about, is a very energy-hungry organ. So mitogen is kind of a, a cross-purpose. It's, it's going to be helpful. Like I take it before workouts. It's good for everything in your body. But because your brain is so energy-hungry, it can be a cognitive enhancer as well. And then uh, Nexus is based around something called aniracetam, which is a man-made synthetic chemical, but it's you know been around for 30, 40 years, been prescribed in Europe as an anti-Alzheimer's drug and an anti-senile dementia, helpful with short-term memory. It's been shown in lots of studies. And um, yeah, I personally find it to be a pretty big creativity enhancer for some of the reasons that we talked about earlier, that tie between short-term memory and creativity. So yeah, those those are the two stacks we have there. There's more information, of course, on, on axonlabs.io. But yeah, go to the wellness forest, you know, grab the um the coupon code that we've got there. I, I'm most excited about kind of smoothing some wrinkles out in our podcast production uh just workflow so I can devote a little bit more time to writing on things like the brain breakfast and actually have some non-audio content that I would I would also like to squeeze in there. Well man, I want to thank you because this podcast has been such an inspiration since I began Wellness Force. So thank you so much for what you're putting out there to empower people to have a stronger brain, a healthier life and just a better experience in this thing that we're doing spinning on this rock in outer space. Thanks for what you do, man. Cool man, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. You made it till the end of episode 97. Tell me you did not laugh out loud a few times and enjoy this process about learning what really makes the difference in our brain and our ways of being from Jesse. If what we talked about on the show today made you laugh or smile or just spark some curiosity in you, send me an email, josh at wellnessforce.com. Don't forget to check out our show notes today at wellnessforce.com forward slash Jesse, J-E-S-S-E. Use the discount code WellFX to get 15% off your cognitive stack from Axon Labs that Jesse was so kind enough to offer us. So I have five different takeaways from today's show, but I promise they'll be brief and bold. The first one, how grateful can we possibly be to live in such an incredible time where we have these types of conversations and we get to use smart drugs to enhance our cognition? I mean, let's just take a moment and be 10x grateful for the 2017 we live in where this type of tech exists. And the second point is around meditation. There is no one size fits all. And the key aspect about meditating is that you just do it. So whether it's mindfulness or Vipassana or transcendental meditation, it's the number one mindfulness practice for the majority of corporations they're teaching in their wellness classes. So at the end of the day, just find something that works for you and meditate. Next up is placebo effect. Jesse talked about how science is showing that people with a pessimistic mindset will believe less in their own health and wellness than people who are overly optimistic, which in my opinion, I don't think it's ever a bad thing to be overly optimistic. So having this mindset of optimism is so gonna impact you and the people around you and the way that your brain perceives if something is actually working for you or not. Have you ever met these people where nothing works? They go from thing to thing to thing and nothing ever works. It's probably not the thing. It's probably more about the mindset. Fourth was self-experimentation, this N equals one that I had mentioned. Becoming your own citizen scientist. Remember, it's not about the app or the device or the bracelet or anything you're using as far as it relates to the intention. It's the intention behind the tool. As we talked about in episode 96 with Daniel about qualia. 
the reason you would take a supplement in the first place is because you have that clear goal of what you need to perform better for. That's the most important thing. And the fifth and final takeaway from the show is just stay curious. Be open to exploring consciousness and different states of consciousness, but also any and all ways that are going to impact your health and wellness for the long term and the long haul. Just stay open and stay curious. So now there's one final thing left to do when you click the phone down or turn off the radio, and that is to go and step out into the world and create a great day for yourself and the people around you you care about. Now, it's not always easy, but today, hopefully it got a little bit easier when you're inspired from people like Jesse and all the other guests we've had on the show that are teaching us step-by-step, little-by-little, brick-by-brick on how to live life well. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness 